We're in verses 12 through 31, which is uh, the remainder of Isaiah chapter 40. So let me set this up on a T so that we understand where we're going and where we've been a little bit. So the prophet Isaiah, the son of uh, Amos, is, is, is a prophet who actually, the, the book of Isaiah can be divided up uh, between basically chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. We are in the second half, and in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, we're speaking about the Assyrian invasion. And God rescues the people of Judah from the Assyrian invasion around about 722 B.C. Uh, and, but the northern tribes of Israel are taken uh, into captivity by the people of Assyria. Now, Isaiah is writing in, from chapters 40 through 66 about what will happen in the future at a Babylonian exile. So he's speaking to a group of people who understand uh, or are seeing this in the future, saying, okay, you're going to be in exile in Babylon, but you need to know that God has not left you or forsaken you. As a matter of fact, what we find is that uh, the big question that we find is found in verse 5 of chapter 40. It's this question of this promise fulfilled. And the promise is this in verse 5 of chapter 40. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there's this sense in which God will bring a Messiah, a Savior, to the people of, of Judah. And, and the questions arise now in Isaiah chapter 40. If we are a people living in exile, if we are a people living in distress and difficulty, the question becomes, can God do it? Is he capable of saving, redeeming his people from their sins and from a world that seems to be filled with chaos? And so in in chapter 40, verses 12 through 31, there's a series of questions. And these these series of questions are, are sectioned off into about five different sections and five big questions. But um, as we get to these questions, let me, um, this is how we're going to frame it today. Uh, I'm going to get to a section, and I'm going to reframe the question that I think relates to us. Uh, because many of us uh, are in the midst of, you know, whether it's we're asking God questions about the future, whether we're asking God questions about our pain, whether we're asking God questions about maybe loneliness or difficulty. We're asking God, I hear many people asking God questions about, what about my children who seem to be far off from you, who seem to have left you? Lord, are you capable of saving them. And so these questions are real questions that we wrestle with, and Isaiah chapter 40 brings these questions to bear. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the section. I'm going to read chapter 40, verses 12 through 17, and then I'm going to speak to the question it um, brings up, and then we're going to go to the next question. And again, there's five different sections, uh, and they all begin with a question, although the first section has a series of questions. Um, But let's, um, let's do that. So you remain seated as we read the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So that first section there, as it begins to relate who God is, and, and, and there's this, this sense in which um, Isaiah wants us to be enamored with the glory of God, with the omnipotence of God, with the omniscience of God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God. And what happens sometimes in the midst of our lives is that we, sat, we, get, we settle for something far less than who God really is. John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, has said this, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. We have nibbled at the table of the world. And our soul is stuffed with small things. And so, so Isaiah is saying, you know, can God show up in a mighty way? Can He reveal Himself so that all flesh see it together? Can He redeem His people? Can He save His people? Will every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low? Will that happen? And, and what the resounding you know, declaration of the prophet Isaiah is this. Is God able to fulfill His promises that He has made? And it is yes. Because He says, Let's think about this, and this really is akin to uh, some songs, but also the book of Job as we see these things working themselves out. And he, and he uses this illustration, and it's astounding to us. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, I want you to think about that. How much water can you put in your hand? How much? You know, if, it was, you know, if I was back there doing children's church right now, we'd have a, a, a pitcher of water, you know, and we'd see, and we'd get really, really messy, and it'd be a lot of fun. I'm not going to do that. But how much do you think? Maybe, maybe let's say a quarter cup, half cup, maybe, right? In, in, the, in the hollow of your hand. And what Isaiah says is, that's nothing. God can take every bit of water in the world and he can place it all into the hollow of his hand. Or it says, and he, and he marked off the heavens with a span. Now, what's a span, right? A span is basically from your pinky to your thumb, that's what a span is. So when you look at the, the, the vastness of the sky and the, and the stars and everything else that we'll get to in, 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 in another section, he's saying God measured that with the span of his hand. And again, these are anthropomorphisms saying this is how mighty and powerful God is. He's so big. He's so powerful that he holds all the waters in the, in the cup of his hand and the span. He goes, yeah, that's about how big the universe is compared to the greatness of and how much power I have, as he spoke the word into being. He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I mean, he, he essentially just has these, these, these scales and these things, or these are hand measurements. And he's going, yeah, I can weigh these things in my hand. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Meaning, he didn't consult anybody. He doesn't need anybody to tell him, hey, you're going in a different direction because God's direction is always the straight direction. God's plan is always the perfect plan. Now, we don't always see it like that. But God in his omniscience, in, in, in the goodness of his character, in the righteousness of who he is, in the holiness of his character, is always doing what is right. And he doesn't need consultants. 
He doesn't need anybody to hold him accountable to his goodness. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding in verse 14 as it continues on. But, but the very idea of who, what justice is, is found in the character and the person of God. In the way of righteousness, in the way of understanding, there, there is limitless understanding. As a matter of fact, our understanding is based upon what God reveals to us in creation, and, and under creation, we can even put science there, but also in His revealed Word. So He reveals Himself within His Word. Like, how do we understand what is good and right and true? It's what God has given to us, because in His character, there is only wisdom in His character. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Essentially, he's saying all the nations. And, you know, oftentimes when we say all the nations, we don't like to think of America as being also a drop in the bucket, right? But he's saying all the nations are just like a drop in the bucket. So, and you've done this, right? Or you've seen small children do it. Or, you know, when you're you're bringing out your bucket to wash your car, and it begins to slosh around a little bit, and a little bit of that water sloshes over the side of the bucket and falls down, but it's not that big a deal because you're outside. He's saying, that's what the nations are. The nations are like that drop on the side of the bucket. That's how great and immense God is. Now, one of the reasons why next week for Children's Sunday School that we'll actually be teaching the attributes of God to the children, myself and Pete Eves, teaching Uh, the children, is because we want them to have a proper understanding of who God is in terms of His attributes, in terms of His holiness, and His omniscience, and His omnipotence, and His aseity, and and His goodness, and His righteousness, and His justice. All of those things. Because we can't fully understand God unless we know who He is, and as He's revealed Himself within His Word, which is one of the reasons why, at, at a foundational level, we need to understand who God is. Now, in, in the Babylonian religion... And again, Babylon at that time was, was a rising nation. In, in the Babylonian religion, the creator god Marduk, and that's you know, their, their creator god in their, in, their, in their creation story, had to consult with Ea, the all-wise. The pagan gods worked by committee. Do you get that? So, so the pagan gods actually weren't, um, they weren't smart enough, so they had to go to other gods who, who were, who were, who were you know, smarter than them or, or smarter in one facet. And yet we have a one true God. Yahweh has revealed himself as saying, no, no, I don't need counsel. I don't need wisdom from anyone. As a matter of fact, I am wisdom. I am truth. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now that's the question. So the question is, Lord, are you able to fulfill the promises that you have made to us? And the resounding question from the prophet Isaiah is, he is, and he will. So so there's another question that arises in in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 40 as we're walking through. So this next section is this, and the question is, is posed, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So the question there in in 18 is, to whom then will you liken God? And the question for us and to the world as it's being revealed to us is this, is that aren't there other gods to worship besides Yahweh? 
are comparisons of other gods. Now, we don't necessarily think about that in sort of the Judeo-Christian world that we live in, in, in you know, Smithfield, Virginia, but we do know that there are other gods. Now, there's a Hindu temple even right around the corner from St. Luke's, which is interesting, but, but when we think about like, places like India, let me read uh, for you just a brief snippet from a book um, by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name about India. He says, India is a place with no parallel. It's beautiful in every way. The people, the culture, the landscape, it's colorful and multi-sensory and vibrant and exotic and strange, and there are so many people. But to me, the most fascinating thing is the spiritually charged atmosphere. There are literally millions of gods in the Hindu pantheon. So everywhere you look, there are temples and shrines and idols and priests in okra-colored robes praying and incense burning and animals dying in sacrifice to Shiva or Vishnu or one of the gods. He goes, I was there visiting an orphanage started by a couple in our church. They call it Happy Home for the Handicapped. In the Hindu caste system, if a child is born with a disability or deformity, they believe you are Dalit, one of the untouchables. It's your karma or punishment for sins in the past life. In some circles, the Dalit are thought of as subhuman. They are to suffer for their past mistakes and do all the jobs nobody else wants. No hope but to die and be reborn into a higher caste and a better life. Some parents will literally drop off their disabled newborns on the side of the road and drive away. Happy home is a place just for kids like that, who have been abandoned, thrown out, left to die. To be honest, I was scared to see it in person. That much pain and suffering in one room made me nervous. I was expecting to be a sad, I was expecting it to be a sad, lonely, disturbing place. Children missing limbs, boys who wouldn't walk, girls who couldn't see all living in poverty with no parents or family. But here's the shocking reality. The thing that stands out most about happy home is that, well, it's happy. And by happy, I mean throbbing with joy. Everywhere you look, you see bright white teeth cracking open dark skin, smiles as wide as the horizon, unstoppable laughter, and it far outshines all the pain, all the all the pain and ache, and this isn't how it should be-ness of an orphanage. Walking into happy home is like walking into a birthday party that never ends. A celebration. I'm pretty sure it's the kind of thing Jesus had in mind when he said, the kingdom of God has come near. But when you walk back outside and you see people sacrificing chickens to Shiva on the street corner and goat blood churning in the roadside ditch as a priest chants a prayer to his divinity of choice, he goes, that is real pain and anguish and sadness. You see, this happy home for the disabled is just that. And it's happy because of Jesus. It's happy because they're serving the one true God. And the one true God says, take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Help those who are hurting. Bring the gospel to bear. Because you know what? We are all looking at different times in our life for a little bit, a little bit of help, a little bit of understanding. And yet what verse 19 and 20 says this in, in Isaiah 40, it says, An idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He, is, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses a wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And you know what happens to those idols? They can't help you. They won't show up. They won't walk with you. They won't guide you. They won't give you everything that you need for life and godliness. But you know who does? 
Jesus shows up. And He gives not only of Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, but then He, he rises to heaven and then the, the triune God gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we can lead a life and never be alone. You know, this, these idols that the world says, yes, follow these idols, they will only leave us empty. As a matter of fact, Blaise Pascal, one of the great uh, mathematicians, but also great theologians, he says, you know, in the midst of other gods, it's actually that our comparisons are weak counterfeits. These these foreign gods are weak counterfeits. And it's like, and he says, and I love this, Pascal says that they are licking the world is what they are. Licking the world, just licking the world, thinking that the world will give them some sort of satisfaction. So are there other gods to worship besides Yahweh? No. There is but one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. The third question comes up in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. And it says this, How, Do you not know? Do you, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as, as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. There's this sense in which you know, the question is this, is God still involved with us today? Is God still working in the midst of, of this world? Or has He, you know, like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin, a, a deist perspective. A deist perspective is this, and sometimes you may have heard this. A deist perspective is a, where God created the world and He spun it into existence and He kind of sent it far out so that it could just exist apart from Him. But we're not deists. We're theists. Meaning that we believe that God is still involved in the world. And is, and is God you know, still involved in the world? And we would say, absolutely. And that we are called to, how, do you not know? Do you not hear? Hasn't that been told you from the beginning? How, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is still involved. Now what's hard for us is this, is that yes, we have a God who is intimately involved in all the nations, involved in all the situations, and yet what we see on the news is we see chaos. And and I I will tell you that in in the last couple weeks, I have met veterans who felt like they have spent part of their life pursuing, you know, Something in Afghanistan, and they feel very lost at this point. And they go, has our sacrifice been for nothing? Have I wasted my life? Have I wasted my time in doing these things? And the question arises, is, is God still there? Is He still there? Is He going to do anything? And our hearts break. Our hearts break for the Christians who were left in Afghanistan because they're facing a dire situation. Our, our hearts break for soldiers who have lost their lives. Our hearts break for the Afghani people who are being tortured and, and literally called out of their homes right now. And we, and we cry out, God, are you there? Are you going to work these things out? How are you going to fix these things, Lord? How, how are you going to save your people? How are you going to redeem your people? 
And, and to us, it looks like utter chaos. And we go, Lord, would you show up in a mighty way? And we pray that he does. But the scriptures say that God is still intimately involved and his ways, his plans, his purposes are all done for his glory and for our benefit, for those who love and believe him. So do we believe that? Do we still believe that God, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth his emptiness, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Essentially what he's saying there, these are just saplings, small plants, the, the smallest, most dainty plants you can have, and yet his breath just wipes them away. You know, God is able to quell nations and rulers, and he's still involved. So another question arises in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. It says this, and it's similar to verse 18. Because in verse 18 it says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him regarding idolatry? But in verse 25 it says this, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like Him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is where I wish uh, last night or the last several nights when there's no humidity and it's really dark where we live and you go outside and you see the great stars all over the place. This is what God is referring to. And this is the the question that arises. Is, Is God in charge of all things? Not just here, but worldwide. You know, galaxy wide. You know what I mean? Is he in charge of all these things? And it says, go outside and look up. And he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Meaning that he's got every star named. Like, I know that you think that you can go on the star registry and name a star after yourself. God already owns that. He already owns all of that. And what we find is, yeah, I have a friend of mine named Dave Benson. Dave's a, a pastor up in a, just outside of Fredericksburg in King George. And, and if you go to his house, behind his house, he has a little shed. And, and it's a funny little shed. And I'm like, Dave, what's that over there? He goes, oh, that's my observatory. And he literally has a shed with a removable um, roof so that he can go out and he can actually just take pictures of the stars because he's, he's, he's enamored by astronomy. Not astrology, astronomy, okay? You know, astronomy is the study of the stars. And he goes out and, and some of the pictures that he has on the cameras and the telescopes that he has are just fascinating. And he goes, when I look at the stars, I, I begin to see and sense the immensity of who God is and his creation and his order. We think about this, like our solar system, our solar system is inside the gal- galaxy called the Milky Way. In this galaxy we live in, is shaped like a spiral, a gigantic pinwheel spinning in the open expanse of space with our solar system rotating around the center once every million years or so. We, um, you know, we lie about two-thirds of the way out from the center of the galaxy in what might be considered the boondocks. You know, we're, we're pretty much the chuck-a-tuck of, our, our, of the Milky Way. The Milky Way is 104,000 light years across, containing over 100 billion stars. To count them one by one would take us over 3,000 years. And according to the Hubble Space Telescope, there are hundreds of 
billions of galaxies in God's universe. I mean, what that should do is it should make you go, ah, it doesn't compute. Like It should shut down your computer in terms of trying to understand and comprehend the immensity of who God is when we think about the skies. And that's what, that's what we read in, in verse 25 of Isaiah chapter 40. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who did? It's God. The final question is, is interesting though because you know in, in verse 27 through 31 we get to this section and it says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The question arises in verse 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded? Here's how I translate that into American, okay? Into English. It's this, Does God care about me? Does he care about me? Because I feel like I'm living in a Babylonian exile and it doesn't seem like he's near. It seems like he's very far off. And so many of us, in the midst of our lives, there will come a time when you feel like you are very distant from the Lord. And you will feel like you are in exile, distant from God. And the question will arise, does God care about me? John Knox, the, the Scottish reformer, actually the founder of Presbyterianism, says this, He says, um, by what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God, the scripture doth, and you got to like it, doth witness. To wit, by pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. Adam and Eve fell when they thought that God does not love us. He does not want to give us good things. And in the same way, we as the people of God struggle with this. Because we go, Lord, I'm not seeing the good things that you're giving me. I'm struggling with these things. I'm struggling with, are you real? And will you show up? Because I want to get there. Um, I want to get to the place where in verse 30 and 31, the promise is, is fulfilled. That youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Like There's a sense in which, I mean, there's, there's a physical aspect, but it's really a spiritual aspect that we're asking about right here. Like, I, I want to be able to run and not be weary. We live very close inside Windsor Castle. And I got to tell you, after every run, I'm pretty weary. Like I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired in the middle of a run. I'm tired before I even start running. I don't even want to do it, but I just want to eat later. You know, I mean, that, that's why we run, right? I mean, so that's, so there's a sense in which we're, we're, we're and I, I so long for that. And that you, we want to run and not be weary. We want to walk and not faint. We want to walk all day and not faint. So, so what is the promise there? You know, it says, but in verse 31, this is really, really difficult, but it's for us. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. 
So this is, again, to a people who, are, who will someday struggle and be in distress. And, the, and, and what Isaiah says, but they who wait for the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean for me and for you that we wait for the Lord? To wait for the Lord means to live in confident, eager suspense. It means to live with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled. This waiting is not killing time. We're not bored in the midst of our waiting, okay? It's not killing time. It isn't sitting around drumming your fingers. It is waiting on tiptoe, waiting with eager longing. It is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It isn't erratic burst of hyperactivity within a general pattern of boredom. It is steady, rugged progress sustained by the conviction that the display of God's glory in Christ is yours. It's this idea of tiptoe anticipation, knowing that God will show up. He will fulfill His promises. Why does He fulfill His promises? Because He's good. And in the attribute of His goodness, He will always fulfill what He says He will do. If He says He's coming back, He will. And so for those of us who are waiting for the glory of God to be revealed at the last days, we should be on tiptoes waiting for Jesus to come back and to put all things back to right. Where sickness and illness and disease and famine and COVID, I mean, I I keep waiting for, I really, really want Jesus to come back because when Jesus comes back, he'll be the ultimate vaccine, right? We don't have to worry about anything. Jesus will come back and he will do away with all illnesses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 says this, not for, the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brothers. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, for those of us who have believed and trusted in Jesus, that's what Paul is calling us to, that we are striving forward, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on toward the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, being, being enamored by the glory of God. I mean, resting in the promises of God. Understanding that our elder brother, our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, who died for us, is our good shepherd. And we want to be following him all the days of our lives and leading our little ones to him as well. Let me close with this quote. Um, if the best we can expect is next summer's vacation in Hawaii, or even just next weekend's outing at the lake, if our hope is a comfortable, successful existence until we die, we'll inevitably, inevitably fall into the lifestyle Pascal called licking the earth. Ego, carnality, and materialism. But if we have something beyond the barbed wire to look forward to, something beautiful that's ours, something to live for, so something that to live for that can never be taken away from us, we can face anything. The idea of future glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we ask questions, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would answer them in your word. Father, are you able? Yes, you are. 
Father, is there any other gods to follow? No, there aren't. Father, do you care about us? Are you in charge? Are you around? And the answers are always yes upon yes. Father, help us to not fall into the sin of thinking that you are distant and removed from us. Father, help us to not buy into the lie that Satan tells us that we are alone. For Father, if we are in Christ, then we are safe and we are loved. So Father, help us. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to trust in Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.